This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Joining us is Professor Peter Goss. Professor, welcome to the COVID report. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, Professor, can you please take us through how the tender system affords space for corruption and the ways in which these matters have to be addressed? So let's go through the whole, let's call it procurement process. So procurement involves quotations involves tenders, involves other kinds of mean, other means of procuring from service providers. Um, the basic uh, process is you compile as a requesting entity, the one that requires, for example, PPE equipment, you prepare a specification of what you need. Now we're assuming that we're dealing with a public tender process in this case, which is one that is open to any party to bid for. So you will prepare a specification. That specification goes through a bid specification committee inside the institution that's preparing the specification. The specification is then approved. You then prepare your full invitation to tender document. So this is a document that will include your specification, setting out what you require, uh, setting out uh, various technical issues about what you require, requiring the parties who will bid to meet certain basic criteria to be able to bid. For example, you must have a tax clearance certificate. For example, you must be a registered company uh, with a registered company number and various other prerequisites to be able to bid. Amongst that might also be that you must have been in business for a particular time frame. Sometimes it might go so far as to request that you provide the financial statements of your company, audited financial statements, to prove that you've existed for a long time and are a going concern. In other words, an institution or a company that is currently operating. Next, you send out this tender invitation, a request for tender, which is inviting parties in an open tender process to tender for work. A closing date is set for when you must submit your tender. So all parties tendering must submit their tenders by a specific closing date. On that closing date and time when the tender closes, the organization that's receiving the tenders will then um, in the, uh, arrive at a tender box. Your tender would tend to be lodged in a tender box. In this climate, we probably aren't lodging tenders in a tender box, but we're submitting our bids electronically. So your tender would close on a fixed time at an electronic play, uh, a venue as uh, announced by the inviting organization or at a physical tender box where you drop it into a box. As I said, in the PPE period, in this COVID period, we're probably all submitting bids electronically. Somebody then uh, secures those bids from a tender box or via the digital system. And that'll be a procurement officer or a team at the institution that invited the tenders. The tenders then go through a pre-assessment process, an administrative assessment process, to make sure you've met the bare administrative criteria for bidding. In other words, your tax clearance certificate is in there, your proof of your company's existence is in there, your proof of who the directors of the company are is in there, your declaration of your interests are in there, uh, which declaration will normally be, we as a tendering entity are not related to any party in the organization with whom we are bidding, we, we are not related to any official of the state that might be involved with the tender evaluation, adjudication, or procurement process, or even more broadly, we're not in, affiliated to any official of the state as a whole. 
So that after the pre-assessment process, which is an admin assessment process, administrative assessment process, um, a evaluation committee is formed by the organization that received the tenders. The evaluation committee then evaluates all the bids received, all the tenders received from the various potential suppliers. It then scores these suppliers in relation to their technical criteria. Often the pricing is handled as a separate phase of evaluation. And the technical evaluation is done separately from the, from the pricing stage. So you'll have a two-pronged process of evaluation. One, an evaluation of the technical specification, and separately on another occasion, the assessment of the prices. Sometimes the assessment of the price is done only for short listed bidders, so you can fall off at the evaluation phase. In other words, your technical spec for the mask you offered us is not appropriate, and therefore you're removed um, from the evaluation phase. You don't make it into the short list of evaluated organizations. So a short list is assembled from the evaluated organizations. Normally between three and five shortlisted bidders make it to the evaluation phase, the shortlist. Now you assess the pricing after you've agreed uh, as a tender evaluation committee. After the evaluation, technical evaluation has been conducted, a pricing evaluation is then conducted. Pricing is quite simple. You're comparing apples to apples that everybody is quoted for the same commodity uh, using the same specification. The pricing is compared and uh, no, more often than not, pricing just becomes an issue of who was the lowest price. So a combination of your technical quality and your price decide who will win the actual tender. Some tenders aren't confined to one winner. Sometimes a tender might require a panel of, of, of organizations to supply the PPE equipment. So you could end up with all five organizations that were on the short list being organizations in relation to which we will now in future uh, place orders. So we'll issue a letter of appointment to that organization. But just uh, one step back, before we issue the letter of appointment, after evaluation, the tender then goes on to a, the shortlisted organizations then go on to a bit adjudication committee. The adjudication will then, um, the evaluation committee prepares a report for the adjudication committee. The evaluation committee might say the top two winning bidders are A and B. The adjudication committee then, looking at this case for who the top two are, decide who the winner is. If it is to be a panel of a listing of service providers, then they will write, rate those uh, bidders uh, in sequence from one to five, for example. Once the bid adjudication committee has agreed with the bid evaluation committee's recommendation for who should win the tender, that service provider is then advised of the fact that their bid has been successful. An order is then placed with that service provider. Perhaps sometimes before the order is placed, a contract and service level agreement is signed with that service provider. Once the contract and service level agreement is signed, an order is placed with the service provider and the service provider then continue with providing services. Now getting into the meat of the issues we are currently seeing in South Africa, what corruption are we seeing around the PPE issue due to the COVID-19 pandemic? What you're seeing is abuse of the tender process through political influence. So what you have is people in political office seem to be fronting with uh, other parties in order to secure 
or redirect contracts uh, or bids um, in relation to PPE equipment. Now, more often than not, you'll find that these political individuals will say, but politicians have no say in the tender process. Of course, theoretically, they should have no say in the tendering process. But what people generally do, corrupt politicians generally do, is they make sure they influence the administrative system uh, offline. In other words, they will liaise with a procurement officer, they will liaise with a government official and negotiate that a tender is awarded to somebody who is a family member of that particular politician. So they influence the process behind the scenes. You can't quite put a finger on that particular influence, but it's certainly rife, as you've seen, that members of senior politicians' families have been winning these bids. Now the question arises, should a family member of a politician not win a bid, not be allowed to win a bid? That's not fair. A member of a politician should be just as um, entitled to uh, bid for a work, for an assignment, bid for the supply of PPE equipment. However, the rule should be that the person bidding for the work should not have an undue advantage as compared to other bidders in that particular uh, bid, in that particular tender. What happens is the politician stays and influences the bid at arm's length. They influence it by putting a whisper on the ground in the department that is inviting the tender, telling someone inside the department to direct a bid in the direction of a family member. Now, we'll never find that in many cases uh, in the evidence when trying to prove it, but um, you know, one can, through quality investigation, uncover, uncover similar misconduct. Now, Professor Goss, in terms of the political influence that you've just alluded to, what is the best way to root it out and stop it from happening? What happens is you'll find that politicians are required to declare their interests uh, through their codes of conduct, uh, parliamentary codes of conduct, for example, code of conduct for members of the executive, for example. Some don't fully disclose their interests. And when they do disclose their interests, we also find that the quality of probity of what has been declared is very weak. What is probity? So I, a politician, declare that I own company, uh, I have a vested interest in company A, or my wife has a vested interest in company A. One would expect that independent probity is conducted of what is that company? Is that company contracting with government? Well, if the company is contracting with government, uh, the politician should not be involved in that process in any way at all. The politician should be totally hands-off. Now, rules of government also dictate that people with a vested interest in the affairs of the state should not bid for work in the state. I don't think that such rules are strongly enforced in the South African context. Ideally, you don't want a politician securing contracts inside a government department because of their position as a politician. In South Africa, that's a very gray area, albeit when we speak of it, when we announce uh, supply chain processes, we say that politicians should not be winning contracts uh, from the state. But that's not entirely true. Politicians are winning contracts from the state. And Professor Goss, as you've just said, politicians are winning contracts from the state. Do we take enough firm action against those who do manipulate the system and the tender process? Sadly, we don't. Sadly, we just go back and tell the person to declare their interest. 
uh, we don't even give them a smack on the wrist and they continue in office, whether it's a political office or whether it's a administrative office inside a government department in which the official was involved in uh, a non-declaration situation and secured a contract or a person related to the official secured a contract and the official did not disclose their relationship to that party. Um, sometimes at a very low level, you do find people action being taken against officials in the administration side of the state. But uh, on a political level, I'm sad to say that we don't take action against politicians for corruption involving procurement. And certainly, it's very isolated if indeed any action is ever taken. Very isolated and very mild action. And that was Professor Peter Goss sharing with us the corruption around tenders and where the manipulation in the system could lie. Now, this is a very frustrating topic for many South Africans, and this is what they had to say. This is Kinelwe from Pretoria. South Africa can minimize or eradicate tender corruption by introducing insourcing of services as opposed to outsourcing of services. This can be achieved by building capacity within the various government departments by obtaining specialized skills to render those services. Tenders can be limited to high capital intensive projects that would require highly specialized skills and highly specialized machinery. And even the process can be managed in such a way that it is centralized at a particular point and it's open to the public for scrutiny. Hi guys, this is Umpime Tiziani from Midlands Soweto. Um, with dealing with tender corruption, I think tenders can just be scrapped and government can go back to the olden ways of having a public works department that can do everything. An example would be a government garage that would service all government vehicles instead of this being tendered out the whole time. And then you'd have your plumbers, your electricians that would fix up government buildings instead of all of this being tendered out. My name is Rafat Tata and I am from Pretoria. Uh, the topic I'm talking about is tender fraud. Uh, with regards to tender fraud, I think that dualism should be something that we should talk about Dual, in, in in this regard i'm talking about dualism as in doing two things at the same time government does have policies in place to eradicate tender fraud government can better use the policies that exist while eliminating this so-called dualism a government official or even a member of parliament should not be involved in tender dealings or businesses that involve government or the, or the procurement of income through government. And that was what some of our fellow South Africans had to say around the corruption when it comes to tenders during the time of COVID-19. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or stream by www.vafm.co.za.